Welcome to Sundays at Grace. Happy New Year to you. I'm Pastor Bill. I'm so glad you've joined us for this edition of the podcast. And I am so excited about the new year. And I am so excited about this new sermon sermon series, 2020 Vision, Seeing Your Life Through God's Eyes. It's based on this verse in Galatians 4.19, where Paul's prayer for the church at Galatia was that that Christ would be formed in their life. And that's our prayer for the new year, that Christ would be formed in us in greater and greater ways in 2020. Hey, if you go to our website, myrgc.com, you can download handout notes to go with this message. And there's also a button there, a link you can click on if you would so choose to contribute to the ministry of Robinson Grace Church and help us continually put out the podcast. Um, This message today, though, I'm so excited it's based directly in Galatians 2:20 20 and 21. It's entitled Christ for Life. And we're going to talk about five things in this message. The death of Christ, the life of Christ, the faith of Christ, the grace of Christ, and the purpose of Christ. All of those working together in your life. How do we live out the Christ life? You're going to find out in this message. Hope you find it as encouraging as, as I did in studying. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us. Let's get right to the message. Well, let's start here. Let's start with a question this morning. Very simple question. You can throw your answers out if you want to throw your answers out to this. A question... For the new year, and we're speaking in general terms, just generally, when you hear the term New Year's, what are some words that immediately come to mind, just in a general sense? Resolutions. Resolutions. Beginning. Beginning. A different month. <laughs> new Year's. Anything strike you? When you hear that word, you think New Year's. Opportunity. Start over. All right, very good. And uh, that is really true. Now, we can ask that question slightly differently, though. We could ask that question more specifically. Okay, this year, uh, what does New Year's mean to me? As in, what season of life am I in right now? So as I look at the new year, you know, maybe I'm not going to define the new year in those terms of a fresh start or a new beginning or something full of great potential, renewed vigor, set goals. Maybe we're not going to look at the new year in that way. We're looking at the new year kind of like, well, maybe not quite as hopeful. Maybe it's filled with uncertainty. Maybe it's filled with some unanswered question. Maybe it's filled with more doubt than faith, more fear than courage. So when you think about specifically, and I won't ask you to answer this one aloud, but as you look at the year ahead of you, I wonder how you define the year and uh, specifically what does 2020 look like maybe the better way to ask the question is when you look at the new year are you looking to thrive in 2020 or are you are you hoping you merely survive 2020 it's like I just hope I can make it to 2021 with what's going on in my life and where I'm at right now I just hope I get to 2021 so much for all the hopeful potential of a new year I just want to survive. And I think that's the question really that we often maybe are faced with every New Year's, depending on where we're at in our season of 
life. Now, what we normally do is we set out to make some resolutions. We got a new year. We're going to resolve to do some things differently. We want to do better and be better in the year ahead. And so we set some resolutions. We want to do better and be better in our relationships. We want to do better and be better when it comes to our health. We want to do better and be better when it comes to our finances. We want to do better and be better when it comes to maybe just learning something new or getting a new experience and expanding who we are as a person. And so we look at the new year and it's kind of like, um, well, what can I do to better myself in 2020? Now, as we think about this idea of New Year's resolutions, and I've made this case before, but there is a strong case, I think even a strong biblical case, to be made against New Year's resolutions. There's a case to be made against New Year's resolutions. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to set them and to make goals for your life. But, but, you know, first, they can tend to be driven by our flesh. It's kind of like I just determined in my flesh, in my own willpower, that I'm just going to do better and be better at something. And uh, sometimes it kind of divorces us from the whole idea of living through the Spirit. The other thing that New Year's resolutions can tend to do then is, well, they can tend to fail us because we fail them. The reality is we often fail at our resolutions. I read a couple studies this week that basically about 40 days in, resolutions start to, they can follow the trends. When, when, you know, most gym memberships, the majority of them are purchased in, you know, the first week of January. And then generally you see when, when people stop going to the gym and they can tell when fast food sales kind of rise. They can do these kind of analytics on, on Google and so they can kind of determine, you know, hey, about they said this year it's like I think the first Thursday of February or the 9th or something that our resolutions will start to fade away. They can kind of predetermine that. And so we often fail at resolutions. And the, the biggest reason about, you know, when we fail at them, then of course we end up defeated, right? Which is really great for our our. Our, our walk with Christ to feel defeated. But here's the, the case against New Year's resolutions. I don't think they really often deal with the core issues that we're struggling with. I mean, we can sit down and resolve, okay, I'm going to be less angry in 2020, right? And so I just try really hard to not be angry. But I never deal with the deeper issues of why am I angry? What am I afraid of or scared of? What's driving my anger? I might say, you know what? I need to drink less in 2020, okay? But I never deal with, well, why do I drink? that much why do i drink that early we can apply this to our finances we can apply this to to uh, being out of shape to to being uh, you know any number of things unsatisfied with our life we can just apply this in any way we don't we set resolutions that don't deal with the core issues of what we're really struggling with and so then we really are unsuccessful in the end as well so here's the deal Let's just think about this reality this morning. What if we took a different approach rather than setting resolutions? And I've kind of talked about this before. Uh, Not quite the way we'll talk about it this year, but, but, but instead of resolutions, what if we came up with a godly vision for 2020? What if we said to the Lord, okay, 2020 is in front of me. What does it look like? Because as I said, some of us are looking at 2020 and we're hoping we can just survive the year. We just got so much going on. We're just carrying such a burden. And it's like, so Lord, can you help me understand this? Can you help me find you as I walk through this year? Others, we might have hopes and dreams for the new year, but what if we said, Lord, what do you want to do to help me reach those hopes and dreams? What are your hopes and dreams for me for the year ahead? And what if we developed a godly vision for the new 
year. And that's where this series comes in, really, 2020 vision, seeing our life through God's eyes. And we're going to start with a verse. This verse will kind of be the key verse of this series, but we looked at it last week in Galatians 4.19. And here is exactly what Paul said, his prayer for the Galatian church. When he looked at all the grace that God had poured into their lives, his prayer for them is the same that his prayer is for you and I, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And it just, Paul just, he, it pained him. He wanted to see Christ formed in them. And that was his goal for them, his desire, his prayer for them. And what a godly vision for our life to stop and look at our life and think, okay, how in 2020 can Christ be great, more, more greatly formed within me. And that's going to be the thrust of this series as we look at how that can become a reality. Here's our big idea, and this will help us, this will help us here uh, to, to understand this big idea will help us get to this point of seeing Christ start to be formed in us. And so the big idea is found right here. Our behaviors are the byproducts of our beliefs. Our behaviors are the byproducts of our beliefs. And I'll tell you right now, this is why a lot of resolutions fail, because our behaviors are driven by what we believe, and we just arbitrarily set resolutions. I'm going to be less angry this year. I'm going to be more patient this year. I'm going to, you know, whatever this year. And yet we never sit down and come up with beliefs to kind of undergird those behaviors and drive those behaviors. And so our behaviors are byproducts of our beliefs. And of course, for us as Christians, where do we get our beliefs? We get our beliefs, hopefully we get our beliefs from the scriptures. And so we're going to look at the scriptures and try to formulate some beliefs. In fact, today we're going to look at two simple verses and five basic truths in these two verses. And we're going to unpack this. And there is there's some stuff in this message today that I'm excited I get to share, and I hope that it's as impactful for you as it has been for me. Five beliefs to shape the new year, to shape the new you, if you want to say it that way, as we look. And so these are a couple of iconic verses. We quote them a lot around here. Some of you, these might be your favorite verses, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There are five core things in there we're going to pull out, and we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to talk about, and they're going to drive these five beliefs. So let's go to the first one, but first let me read this to you in the King James, because we're going to kind of reference this in the King James as well. There's a couple of places here that it's slightly different in a significant way. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And we will show you the, the power of this verse and we're going to see it from both translations anyway first uh, first reality in this thing to look at the first core truth here is the death of christ and here's our belief basically before we can truly live we have to die before we can truly live we have to die and that's exactly what paul says here i have been crucified with Christ. Now, here's the reality. There's this basic truth that Paul is giving us here that Jesus, when he went to the cross, did not die alone. 
He didn't die alone. Now, we know this is true on a literal level, right? When Jesus hung on the cross, there was a man on his right side and a man on his left side. Two criminals hung there with him. And so in a very literal sense, we know this is true, that Jesus didn't die alone. Here's the text, actually, if we look at it. Luke chapter 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus didn't die alone. We know that literally, that, that there was two men that were crucified next to him. But the reality is, this is really powerful. Now, this is, this is done according to Roman culture, that there would be one crucified here and one on each side of, of them, and that was kind of in the culture. But I think it's very intentional that the Lord did this, that God did this, because he, he shows us a picture of every one of us, that every one of us have a choice. Every one of us have a choice. Have to, we have to respond to the, the death of Christ. We have to respond to the gospel. And the reality is, one man was crucified next to Jesus. One man was crucified with Christ. There's a big difference. One man was crucified next to Jesus. He died for his own sins. The other man was crucified with Jesus. And, and so he was spiritually crucified. It wasn't just a literal fact, but spiritually he was crucified with Christ. That's why Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, watch, listen to what this man says. It's fascinating because this man kind of gives us a synopsis of how we respond to the gospel. Did you, did you catch it in there? Here, two men and two responses. And the two responses are humility on one hand, versus the pride on the other, versus hardening the heart on the other. One man softened his heart in humility, the other hardened his heart in pride. And here's the reality. Here's what this man says that kind of shows us a picture of responding to the gospel, of believing and receiving. That's our response to the gospel. We have to believe and receive. And so here's what he says. Do you not fear God? So here's this man, he believed that, I believe he believed that Jesus was God or that Jesus was who he said he was. He believed to the best of his knowledge. This is really significant because if you look over in Matthew, you'll find out that they were on the cross for a long time. And earlier in the day when they're on the cross, it says both criminals were reviling Jesus. Both criminals were mocking Jesus. But somehow over the course of this time, the one criminal has a change of heart. He softens his heart. He looks at Christ. He looks at the cross. He looks at the gospel. He softened his heart. And now he actually has a different take on God. Do you not fear God? He goes on, we are justly receiving the due rewards of our deeds. So he believed he was a sinner. He, in essence, confesses, hey, I deserve to be here. I'm a sinner. The gospel requires that we confess our sin, that we own up to our sin. And he does exactly that. Then it goes on, but this man has done nothing wrong. So he believed Jesus was innocent. He said, Jesus is innocent. He doesn't deserve to be here. I do deserve to be here. Why is he here? Well, look what he says to him next. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he must have understood in some level, and I don't know that he understood the gospel as well as we do. It had never been explained as well as it's been explained to us, at least at this point. But Somehow Jesus was there and Jesus could somehow get him from the cross into heaven, into paradise, into glory. And so he asked Jesus to save him. 
And you just kind of see within the context here, you kind of see the, 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 the response to the gospel played out of how we need to respond, that we are guilty, that Jesus isn't, that He can save us and He can take us into glory. The gospel in a nutshell. Now, let me show you one other thing here. Because before we can truly live, we have to die. We have to be crucified with Christ. We have to respond to the gospel. So that's the reality. So there's two things here. Number one, the the English standard says, I have been crucified. Speaking to a past reality. That this happened. Happened 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Christ was crucified. And I have been, in the past, Paul says, crucified because I responded to the grace. So that's a done deal. I have been crucified with Christ. It's a past reality. And we don't have to be crucified every day. Over and over and over again, we have been crucified with Christ. But then, the New King James says, I am crucified. And both, both of those are equally significant in what they express. But I am crucified, and this would kind of frame this as a present identity. That my crucifixion with Christ is what defines me. That I'm not defined by my sin again. But that I am defined by my crucifixion with Christ. When Jesus was crucified, so was I. Who was crucified? My old man was crucified. My sin nature was crucified. Uh, Galatians 2.20. This is the New Living Translation. Oh, I don't have it on the screen. Or maybe I do, but I don't. Um, the New Living Translation says, says it this way. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I love the way it expresses that. Because the reality is, is that your old man, your sin nature was crucified, went into that grave. And I know it's, it's, it's popular teaching today that, that we still have this sin nature. I'm going to contend to you, it went into the grave and it didn't come back out. You came out a new creation in Christ. You are in Christ, no longer dead in Adam. And so that is what defines you. Literally, before we were saved, we were the walking dead. And before we can truly live, we have to die. That old sin nature has to die, has to be crucified with Christ. And when that happens, we then can be alive. So that's really... Now, why is this so important? Why do I always say? I always say, again, sin is not you, sin is in you. So we struggle with sin. Sin is in me, but it does not define me. It is not me. Christ defines me. Why is that so incredibly important? Because our behaviors are the byproducts of our beliefs. And what I believe about myself will impact how I behave. So I think that's more significant. Some people think it's all semantics and it's not, but I think it is more significant than we realize. So the most crucial question this morning is this. Have I been crucified with Christ? That's the most crucial question we can ask. Has my old sin nature that defines me been buried in the grave never to rise again? Let's make sure we don't go home this morning in our sin nature. Let's make sure that we have been crucified with Christ and make that decision this morning if not. Okay, here's the second thing. Paul goes on. From the death of Christ to the life of Christ. First, before I can truly live, I have to die. The second point is, before we die, we can truly live. Before we die, before we go six feet under, before the end of our life, we can truly live. We can truly live if we understand the life of Christ. And Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
Wow. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is this this a true or false statement? Let's unpack this a little bit here. Um, Question. Are we saved by the death of Jesus on the cross? How many would say we're saved by the death of Jesus on the cross? True? How many say it's false? Well, let's let's look at what the scripture says to us. Here it is. It's found in Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, from the, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we are saved by the life of Christ, not the death of Christ. I'm forgiven, I'm justified by the blood of the cross, by the death of Christ. I'm actually saved by the life of Christ. Christ comes into me, comes alive in me, resurrects in me. And so this is really, really, really more significant than we probably think. In fact, remember these words Jesus spoke in John 10.10. Remember this? Christ is intended to be abundant life for us. John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Christ wants to offer you abundant life. You know what? You will not find abundant life in the death of Christ. You will find it in the life of Christ. The the life of Christ is the abundant life. Christ for life. Christ is intended to be our life. He's intended to be our abundant life. That's the reality. Now, how does this work? So maybe a scripture, because I think we don't always understand this idea that Christ is my life. If Christ is my life, do I stop existing? I mean, okay, Christ is my life, so I don't exist anymore. How does that work? Well, no, that's not true. I'm still me. I still have my personality. I still have my, you know, my temperament. I still have my, uh, my interests and I still have my uh, experiences and my memories and I still am me, but Christ is my life. How does that work? Here, look at, look at this one. John 17. Jesus, the night that he was arrested, is praying for his followers. And he prays not just for his followers, but for all of us that will one day be his followers and one day one day we'll be in a relationship with him. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, that we would all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Think about that. God has given you His glory. Think about that for a moment. Okay? That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. So here's the reality when you look at that scripture there and you want to understand the idea. There's this thing called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's one God in three distinct persons, but they're all one. And what Paul is, what, 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 excuse me, what Jesus is telling us here in this prayer is that he prayed that when we became saved, that we would understand that we become one with him. We become fused with him. We're like one. And we're one with Christ. And by extension, we're one with the entire Godhead. I'm part of the Trinity. I'm, we're one. We're all one with each other, and we're all one with Him spiritually. We can't even fully comprehend what that looks like 
to understand how we're one with each other and, and then we're one with Christ, we're fused with Christ and Christ is my life and yet I'm still me. I'm still uniquely me, but Christ is my life and we are one. And the reality is we all, as I said, we have our unique personality and our unique desires and interests and abilities and we're all wired and made and created differently. We even also have our own unique decisions and choices to make, right, in life. I can choose to live through the life of Christ, through the Spirit, or I can choose to live through my flesh. I have that choice. I I still live in a fleshly body. But even in this fleshly body, I am one. I am fused with Christ. I'm one with Him. Christ is my life. I'm still me. We're one. And before I die, I can truly live if I learn how to live out of the abundant life of Christ and all that He is. And we're going to see what that looks like even more so in a minute. We could say it like this here, kind of a shout back to, to Christmas in the incarnation. Jesus became one of us so we could become one with Him. Just think about that. Christ came to this earth, became one of us, took on flesh and blood so that we could spiritually become one with him and be fused to him. And that's our reality. It's an amazing reality. We are one with Christ. Okay, so two things we've seen. Before we can truly live, we have to die. And before I die, I can truly live. And these are important because our behaviors are the byproducts of our belief. Here's number three. Here's the third issue that Paul raises. It's the faith of Christ. From the death of Christ to the life of Christ to the faith of Christ. So how do I live out the Christ life? If if I'm one with Christ, how do I live him out? Well, you do it through the faith of Christ. And here's the key truth we need to grasp. It is the faith of Christ, not our faith in Christ, that transforms us. It is the faith of Christ, not our faith in Christ, that transforms us. And so the scriptures say that. I live by faith in the Son of God or I live by the faith of the Son of God. Hey, let me just intercept the message briefly here because there is something really powerful we're going to get into here and it's something that is so often misunderstood and it has to do really it's a translation issue and so all of the newer translations including the English Standard Version which is the translation I primarily use listen to how it translates this verse for us it says in the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me but if you go to the, uh, the King James translation, it actually nails this very, very well. It says, "In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And listen, the difference between my salvation being based on my faith in Christ or the faith of Christ is huge. It is. It is really huge. It's not semantics. It's important. And I'm going to describe that in the next part of this message. And really, this is important because this plays into then how we live out the Christ life. So let's get back into the message. But it's not your faith that saves you. It is the faith of Christ that saves us. We see this. Okay, here's Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, King James. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Go back a couple of verses to verse 16. Listen to how it says it here. Knowing that a man is not justified. We're not justified 
by the works of the law, but by what? The faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You see, we're not saved by our faith. We are saved by the faith of Jesus himself. The truth of us, none of us could come up with enough faith to save ourselves. I'm not saved by my righteousness. I'm not saved by my faith, but by the faith of Christ. So Jesus has faith, and I simply believe whatever he believes. I believe what he says about me. Now, some may argue this is just semantics, in Christ, of Christ, faith in Christ, faith. It doesn't matter. It does matter. There's a greater issue here, and I'm going to try to help us hopefully grasp this issue a little better. So let's ask this question. What did Jesus believe? What did the faith of Jesus look like? If I'm to live by the faith of Christ, then I should probably know what Jesus, what his faith looked like. So understand our key again. Now, if I put it on here, understand our key again is that our behaviors are the byproducts of our beliefs. And can I just, just contend to you this morning that I believe Jesus' behaviors were the byproduct of his beliefs. Jesus, what did Jesus believe? We know Jesus went to the cross and offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Why did he do that? Because he believed some things. And Jesus' own beliefs shaped his behavior. How much more will our beliefs not shape our behavior? Let me take you through uh, just three texts here. I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read these. just want you to listen for this and say, okay, what does the faith of Jesus look like? What, is, what does he have faith in? I'll just run through these here. Uh, this is the, the, the night of the crucifixion, day of the crucifixion. Jesus encounters uh, some of his followers. Luke 24, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Later on that night, he meets the 12, he meets Peter and the 12 in a room. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. We get a sense here of what Jesus believed. We get a sense of what he believed about the Bible, especially the Old Testament and his place in the Old Testament. We get a sense about what he believed about himself, about his mission, his death, and his ultimate resurrection. In fact, in the Gospel of John, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. These things I have received from my Father. What did Jesus say? He laid down his life. Why did Jesus lay down his life? Because he had faith. Because he believed some things. He believed. Now, you got to understand this again. Remember, Jesus is born as a little baby. 
and he's born, and he doesn't grow up and instinctively at one or two or three or four say, I'm God, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah of the world. No, he didn't, he didn't take his God card out and have just all knowledge. He lived his life like you and I did. He had to learn things like you and I did. He was still God, we've talked about that, he's still 100% God, but he did not use his uh, divine privileges as an advantage in life. He faced life like you and I. So he didn't know who he was and he had to study the scriptures like any other Jewish boy and he had to listen to his mom and he had to learn that, hey, that's talking about me. Hey, I was born like that. I was born, my mom was a virgin. I was, this is who I am. And he had to learn all this stuff and he had to believe it all by faith. He had to take it all by faith and say, you know what, I believe that's me. And I believe that if I go to the cross, and I lay down my life, I can save this world from their sins. Let me give you one other passage, Acts 2.24. And here, this is great because this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he's preaching and he's quoting from the Old Testament from the book of Psalms. God raised him up, Peter says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. He's speaking here of Jesus. Jesus is the one saying, I will not be shaken. I, I, I have faith, I'm not going to be shaken because I have this faith. Going on, verse 26, Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, Peter says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not abandon to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So here, here's the... Corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Now, here's the thing. This is what Jesus believed. Now, follow me here. Peter's preaching, right? Peter's preaching this, but this is what Jesus believed. How do we know that this is what Jesus believed? Though it's Peter preaching it. Where did Peter get it? Luke 24, then he said to them, the day of his resurrection, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Everything Peter is saying, he was taught by Jesus. Jesus said, this is me. This is what I believe about me. This is what I believe about my death. And how are we saved? Not by our faith, but by believing that Jesus had faith. He's the one that had faith. He's the one that went on the cross and in the grave believing he would come back to life. He had the faith. That's how we're saved. We're saved by the faith of Christ, not our faith in Christ. And we live our life every day the same way. Real quickly here then, let me give you a run, run through here. Seven quick things Jesus had faith in. He believed the Bible was true. Jesus believed the Bible was true. I'll give you a chance to jot these down. I'm going to run through them quickly. Jesus believed that the Father loved him. And it's so much easier to do what God wants you to do when you know that he loves you. When you know God loves you, it's, you can easier, do much easier what he wants you to do. 
I'm not going to read the scriptures here. Uh, he knew that the father would not abandon him. He knew that he was going to die and he was going to go to paradise and he was going to stop in Hades and he was going to go into the grave, but he knew that God would not abandon him there. God would not leave him there. We just read that in the text. He knew that the grave could not hold him. Acts 2.24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He knew he was going into the grave, but the grave could not hold him. He believed that sin could not stain him, that he was dying for the sins of the world. As John said, he was the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, and he believed that his death would do just that, that sin could not stain him. And he believed that Satan could not defeat him. That's right. He knew Satan couldn't defeat him and he knew that the resurrection would forever define him. That's the reality. And that's what it means to have the faith of Christ, not just faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ. Do you get what's going on? Do you see how to apply this? The Christ life is based upon not my faith, but the faith of Christ. Is there anything you sometimes find it hard to believe? Follow me. Do you find it hard to believe that God can forgive you for your past? Do you find it hard to believe that you are defined by Christ and not by your actions? Do you find it hard to believe that you are really righteous and holy? Do you find it hard to believe that you don't have a sin nature? Do you find it hard to believe that you have anything to offer God? Do you find it hard to believe that God would adopt you into his family? Do you find it hard to believe that God is not mad at or disappointed in you? Do you find it hard to believe any of that? Well, let me just tell you, all you have to do is believe that Jesus believes. Jesus believes God is not mad or disappointed at you. Jesus believes God has adopted you into his family. Jesus believes you are holy and righteous. Jesus believes. Jesus has the faith. And so if Jesus says it, okay, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Because sometimes we're not going to have the faith. Sometimes we're not going to feel it. Sometimes we're going to struggle to believe it. And so all we need to do is say, I have a hard time believing that, but Jesus says it. Jesus believed it. Jesus went to the cross because he believed it. And I'll live my life on that reality. I'll live my life on that reality. I don't have to have faith. I just have to believe whatever Jesus believes in the end. That's ultimately what it is. I have to believe. Hey, Jesus says it. Even when it's hard to believe, he believes it. Last two truths. Let's deal with them quickly here. The grace of Christ in verse, he goes on here, number four. And here's the deal. It is resting in the grace of Christ that assures me. The text says that he who loved me and gave himself for me And then he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. The reason we can be saved by grace then is because we are not saved by our faith. We're saved by his faith. That's the whole point. It's by grace because it's not my faith. It's not I have to muster up enough faith to be saved. No, I believe that he had the faith and went to the cross and I'm saved by grace through faith. And here's the reality. Why? Because here's the reality. God loves me. That's it. It's just God loves me. It's that simple. Who loved me and gave himself. Why did Christ do all that? He had faith, yes, and he loved me. And that love can give me incredible insurance. That love can give me an incredible assurance of my salvation. 
It is the grace of Christ that assures me, even in the middle of my pain and my struggle, it is the grace of Christ that comforts me. And it's easier to follow someone when you know they love you, when you believe they love you. It is easier to follow them and do what they ask. Paul goes on, though, and he says this here. He says, um, Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. How do, we, how do we frustrate the grace of God? How do we nullify the grace of God? I think by believing there is a greater blessing to be had in our performance and by believing that it depends on my faith and not the faith of Christ. When I think it hinges on my faith, in my performance, I think I nullify the grace of God. The reality is God loved us and Christ died for us despite our performance and in lieu of our performance. Our performance is so bad and our weak is so faith. Our faith is so weak. Performance is so bad and our faith is so weak. We need Christ and what he did on the cross. We need his work. We need his faith. We need his righteousness. And here is the thing, all of our spiritual blessings are found in Christ and they flow through the gospel. Yet the message I think a lot of times I hear today in churches, I listen to other messages and I just hear this all the time and it breaks my heart, but I hear so many messages that I think nullify or frustrate the grace of God. I keep hearing things like this, that if you give a certain amount of money financially, God will bless your finances. That if you give more financially, God will bless you more. That if you read your Bible more, God will bless you more. If you pray more, God will bless you more. If you witness more, God will bless you more. If you demonstrate greater faith, God will bless you more. If you obey more, God will bless you more. And the thing is, and I, I made this point, I think, last fall, but the reality is we don't get more blessing by doing more. We don't get more blessing by doing more. The reality is the doing is the blessing. I don't get more blessing when I read my scripture. Reading my scripture, that's the blessing. That's the blessing. I don't get more blessing by having greater faith. I get greater blessing by trusting in the faith of Christ and what he says about me. I don't get more blessing when I give or when I pray or when I do any of those. It's doing those things. It's the giving. It's spending time on the word. It's praying and serving and witnessing and trusting in the faith of Jesus. Those are the blessings. Those are the spiritual blessings of Christ unleashed in my life as I what? Live the Christ life as Christ is my life. It is not about me. Now, here's the reality. I know there is something. You might say this. What about this law in the scripture of sowing and reaping, right? There's this law of sowing and reaping. And what we sow, we will reap. Let me ask you this morning. What's the greatest thing you have that you could sow? What's the greatest thing you possess that you could sow? How about the life of Christ? If you just sow who you are in Christ, back into this world. And the reality is, here's the thing about the, the, this thing about sowing and reaping. You know to sow, when you sow, what are you sowing? If you sow financially, what are you sowing? You're sowing your blessings. If you sow your time, you're sowing your blessings. If you sow your service and your gifts and your talent, you're sowing your blessings. That's the reality. 
Sowing and reaping, I don't sow, so I get a blessing when I sow. I'm actually sowing the blessings that God has given me. I'm just pouring them back out. I'm pouring grace into other people's lives and mercy and forgiveness and love and time and whatever it might be. Sometimes it's financial, whatever it might be. And I just pour it into someone's life. I'm sowing the blessings of God. I'm sowing the very life of Christ back into a broken and hurting and empty world. And yes, I will reap accordingly. But I won't reap more blessings. I just realize how blessed I am. Do you get it? I don't get more blessings. I just realize, wow, look how blessed I am that I could pour myself out. And Paul, you can find verses that Paul says that. He just poured himself out as an offering to those around him. Not to get more blessings, but because he was blessed. And when he poured himself out, he realized how blessed he really was. And so that takes us from the death of Christ, the life of Christ, the faith of Christ, the grace of Christ, all the way to the purpose of Christ, the purpose of Christ. Now, here's the reality. We think about the purpose of Christ here as we wrap up this morning. As we think about the purpose of Christ, do you know what God's greatest purpose for your life is? Do you know ultimately why Jesus died on the cross for you this morning? Yes, so you could be saved. Yes, so you could have life. Yes, so you could have abundant life. Do you know the ultimate purpose why Jesus went to the cross and died for you this morning? Here it is, number five. The purpose of Christ's death was not merely so he could live in me, but so that he could be formed in me. Oh, my little children, that Christ would be formed in you. That Christ that the life of Christ would actually be formed in you more and more and more. That's the ultimate reality of everything. You see, righteousness is not by the law, and Christ did, did die for a purpose. He died so that Christ could be formed in you and me. The first Adam sinned and brought death upon all people. The second Adam, Jesus, lived totally righteous and brought life for all people. The truth is, if Christ is your life, then Christ can be formed in you. If you've been crucified with Christ... If you've been resurrected with Christ, then Christ can be formed in you. So what did we learn today? We learned that our behaviors are the byproducts of our beliefs. And we learned that before we can truly live, we have to die. And that before we die, we can truly live. We learned it's the faith of Christ, not simply our faith in Christ that transforms us. We found that it is resting in the grace of Christ that assures me. And finally, ultimately, the purpose of Christ's death was not just so he could live in us, but so that he could be formed in us. Let me just say it to you this way this morning here. Christ is our life. We live by his faith and he is, as he is formed in us. Let me just repeat that. If you want to jot that down, you can. Christ is our life. We live by his faith as he is formed in us. In us, And over the next several weeks, I hopefully we can talk about what does this look like? How does Christ need to be formed in my life in the year ahead? A couple of questions today. Have I been crucified with Christ? Have I been crucified with Christ? And then which belief this morning spoke to me the most of those five beliefs, the death, the life, the faith, the grace, the purpose, which one of those really just resonates with you this morning? And the question here is how can living off the faith of Christ versus our own faith in Christ impact us, impact me? If I get this down, if I really understand the difference between living 
with faith in Christ or living off the faith of Christ? How would that impact my life? And I would dwell on that this week and I would ask God to help you understand it. And we can talk about that more because I can give you more scriptural back, uh, backdrop to that to help us understand that reality. And then um, there is one last question here. Is there something you have a hard time believing that Jesus believes? Well, rest in His grace this morning. Let me leave you with this. In 1738, the literary giant Samuel Johnson wrote in his diary, O Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. Nineteen years later, he wrote, O mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. He wrote some variation of this prayer every year after that. Finally, in 1775, 38 years after his first resolution, he wrote, when I look back upon the resolution of improvement and amendments which uh, have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try and resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. Johnson is describing human life. We start every year thinking, this is the year. We resolve to turn over a new leaf, and this time we are serious. We promise ourselves we're going to quit bad habits and start good ones. We're going to get into shape, eat better, waste less time, be more content, be more disciplined, and so forth. We're going to be better husbands, wives, fathers, mothers. And then 12 months later, we've fallen short again. The gospel is the good news announcing Jesus' infallible devotion to us in spite of our inconsistent devotion to Him. As this new year gets underway, take comfort in knowing that we are weak and He is strong, that even as our love for Jesus falls short, Jesus' love for us never will. From the book, it is finished. Just know that. Just have faith in that. Have faith in that, that God loves you And we're going to mess our resolutions up year after year after year. This year, let's just say, how can Christ, through his faith, be great, more greatly formed in me? Father God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the heart of Paul. Thank you for Paul's incredible theological truth here. May we understand it's not my faith. It's your faith. It's the faith of Christ who believed that if he went to the cross... He could conquer sin. He could conquer death. He could conquer hell and that he could be my, my life. He could be my hope. He could be my joy. He could be my faith. In Jesus' name, amen.